With great power comes great responsibility. Compromise where you can. Where you can't, don't. Even if everyone is telling you that something wrong is something right. Even if the whole world is telling you to move. It is your duty to plant yourself like a tree. Look them in the eye and say no. You move. Never step onto the battlefield of ideas unprepared. Before you enter the fray, you need a plan. And there's no better place to get one than right here on Tactics with host Caleb Colquitt. The Situation Room goes live now on News Radio 1440. Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Welcome to the program. Be sure to like and subscribe if you're watching us on Facebook or Twitter. Follow our page, Tactics Radio, on Facebook. Subscribe to our channel, Tactics Radio, on YouTube. And uh, just a quick kind of housekeeping update. We've actually expanded into some new venues. We're going to be on Rumble. So you can go to rumble.com and check out and subscribe to our channel there. We're just trying to dip our toe into some alternate media, try to, to expand out, because inevitably the dark cyber overlords at YouTube will wind up censoring us at some point. And it just makes sense to have some infrastructure in place for when that happens, to be uh, have a little presence on other menus. I'm also expanding into free space, which is a new social media, and I'm going to try to get on Parlor, though I haven't done that yet. So just, you know, be looking for us in some of those new venues. Uh, we're really excited to be expanding into those areas. And before we do get into the news of the day, I did want to say happy birthday to my brother. His birthday isn't today, it's tomorrow, but I'm very excited about that. And I'll be bringing him his birthday present and everything. So happy brother, uh, happy birthday to my little brother, Levi. Um, you know, it's weird to think that he's as old as he is. I still think of him like he's eight years old, but... Uh, happy birthday to him, and also I will be gone tomorrow. I'm going to be doing FFA district eliminations. I will be judging the extemporaneous speaking contest. Very tough contest, very difficult for the young people that are going to be in it. I, I consider it one of the toughest contests in the FFA. They are given a topic that can be anything related to agriculture, which, if you know anything about agriculture, is a really, really big window of things that it could be. And then they are given a topic and they have 30 minutes to prepare a speech that must last somewhere between four and six minutes. And they have to answer questions on it afterwards. So they don't even just get to give the speech. They also have to get cross-examined by the judges afterward. Very, very difficult contest. The people that do it and do well in it have to be incredibly bright. And so I will be judging that, looking forward to that, judging for the Central District eliminations for FFA tomorrow. So... Now that we've got all of that out of the way, did want to mention a new story. I It's weird because I am happy about it, but at the same time, I don't want to be overly celebratory. And the reason for that is it seems weird to be happy about a government now, you know, stopping from refraining from, I guess would be the best way to say it, restricting your rights. I mean, yeah, you're glad, but at the same time, they're supposed to do that. Like, it's great that they're not oppressing me anymore, but at the same time, I, I kind of feel weird congratulating for them for that because they were supposed to do that from the beginning. But anyway, um, of course, I am talking about the mask mandate, which is no longer in place. Governor Kay Ivey's mask mandate expired, which that was the right call. That was the, the right thing to do on her part is to go ahead and, and let it time out, which it did on the 9th. It's now the 15th. And so we're almost a full week after that. And, um, 
you know, I'm, I'm happy to report that the Armageddon did not happen. Everyone isn't dying in the streets. We don't have, uh, you know, just people lying out dead. There's, there's not like a giant pile of bodies outside every hospital. Uh, miraculously, getting rid of the mask mandate had pretty much no effect. None whatsoever. And a lot of that is due to people just doing what they were doing before the mask mandate. The people that didn't want to wear the mask mandate back when it was, or wear the mask back when the mandate was in effect, they're not wearing it now. They weren't wearing it then. And the same thing is true for the people that wanted to wear the mask. The, they were wearing it when the mandate was in place. They are continuing to wear it now that it's not. And so it's one thing that I, I think is incredibly silly. And this is not just true of Alabama. This is true of all government. They really believe that they have this great impact on people's lives. And, and first of all, ideally, the government should have minimal impact on your everyday life. But second of all, even if you take the idealism out of it, uh, they really don't. I mean, with the exception of, of big authoritarian governments, and this is the way it's supposed to be in America, we lead the government, not the other way around. They're supposed to take cues from us. We're not supposed to take cues from them. We're the ones affecting their behavior, not the opposite. That's the way it's supposed to work in this country, at least. And so what happened is people were wearing masks before it was mandated. And, and data shows this state by state. Every single state, all 50 of them, they were wearing masks before the mandate was put into place. They had an increased rate of masking once cases started to get bad in their state. And people started taking off the mask without exception, the, the rate of masking was on a downward trajectory before whatever state got rid of their mandate. Now, uh, only 24 states have done so. There's, so there's still 26 where the mask mandates are in place and, of course, some territories in D.C. But the point is, about half the country has already done this, and in all 24 of the states that have repealed or let their mask mandate expire, every single one without exception people were starting to take the mask off before the mandate went up. This is the way that it happens. The government follows our lead, not the other way around. But when it comes to KIV, I'm somewhat amused by it. I mean, I'm annoyed by it at the same time, too. But I'm, I'm very amused by the fact that KIV handled this in the most KIV way humanly possible. Because if you want to understand KIV and if you want to be, be pretty good at predicting what she's going to do next, I learned this a long time ago. I'm talking about pre-Governor Ivy, back when she was the lieutenant governor. The way that you can calculate and figure out what KIV is going to do next, KIV has one political philosophy and one political philosophy only, which is don't make waves. Keep your head down, don't make waves, stay out of the headlines. That, that's it. I mean, those are all different forms of the same principle, which is just stay out of the spotlight and, and don't, which by the way, inherently is not a bad political philosophy. It's just when it influences every single decision you make, does it become a problem? But as far as the idea of, of staying out of the, the head, uh, staying out of the spotlight and, and not necessarily, you know, being on TV 24 seven, th that's actually not a bad quality to have in a politician, to be perfectly frank. I, I kind of like that about her, but she has taken it to a ridiculous level to an art form to where every decision she makes is just let's. I will be as le least controversial as humanly possible. Weirdly enough, the only other person that I can think of that is as good at that play as Governor Ivy 
is John Roberts. John Roberts seems every single decision that he makes as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court is, I'm going to do my dead level best in every single thing that I do to make as few headlines and to be as uncontroversial as humanly possible. Now, the irony of that is John Roberts, unlike KIV, winds up somehow becoming controversial regardless of that being his only political philosophy. It seems like no matter what he does, he winds up being controversial. But nonetheless, getting back to Governor Ivey here, this was the ultimate KIV move. Because if your goal is to stay out of the headlines and not make waves, she played it perfectly. Because she waited and waited and waited and waited and waited until... You had states like Mississippi and Texas and Florida repealing their mask mandates. And then she didn't even do it then because what she didn't want is to be lumped in with the other states when the leftist media on the national stage was covering it and say, oh, look at all these, to use the president of the United States words, Neanderthals that are now repealing their mask mandates, even though the mask mandates have been proven to be ineffective. But nonetheless, she didn't want to be lumped in with that group. But she knew that her people were seeing Texas and Florida and Mississippi starting to get rid of their mask mandates and that her state, a very red conservative state, was going to be very miffed at her. Miffed is being very polite. They were going to be quite miffed at her if she didn't do something. So what she did was she split the baby. She said, I am going to repeal the mask mandate, but I'm not going to do it right now. I'm going to set the date in the future by about a month, and then it will expire, and I'll let it expire. And so you see how she kind of split the difference there? On the one side, the people that wanted the mask mandate gone, her own constituents by and large, they were like, really, another month of this? But there was the light at the end of the tunnel. She was like, I'm not repealing the mask mandate at least not for another month. Eh? That that little crack of the door came open. And so by doing that, she kept, you know, the people in the state from being even more angry at her than they already were. But then it also had the effect of but she's not getting rid of the the mandate right now, which means that the national media is not going to ride uh, get all over and write her case about this. It was actually politically pretty smart. Now, I wish that we had a bolder governor that, that actually did lead by example and just said, nope, screw it, we're getting rid of it. I would have loved that. I would have loved to have been in that boat. But Co Governor Ivey does not want to be in that boat. And that's the reason that she played it the way that she did. And so, again, I'm, I'm annoyed by it. But at the same time, you got you to gotta sit back and chuckle. Like, this was the most KIV move that anybody could possibly make. Now, in response to all of this and the fact that we are no longer under an unconstitutional mask mandate that at the state level, which I maintained, and, and you can go watch my rationale, and I actually look through the letter of the law and look through the wording of the mandate, uh, you can see me debunk all that in a video that I did about a year ago, um, feels like, may, maybe more like eight months, but when KIV originally put the mandate into place in July of last year, you can actually see my video on that explaining why it's unconstitutional, so be sure to check that out at Tactics Radio on my YouTube channel if you want to watch that. We're not going to go over that now, but it was an unconstitutional order. But in response to this, in response to the mask mandate being repealed, Mayors Reed and Woodfin, the mayor of the city of Montgomery and the mayor of Birmingham, 
And I believe that there are other mayors. I just didn't see the news for it because, I mean, I live in Montgomery and Birmingham's just right up the road. But those, the mayor of those two cities already announced that they will be enacting their own localized mask mandate. Now, here's the thing. Do I think it's stupid? Yes, I do. Do I think that the mask mandate is pointless because it does nothing? Yes, I absolutely do. Now, whether or not the masks themselves work, there is a little bit of science that suggests they might, but the science overwhelmingly suggests that there is zero chance of the mask mandate working. Every single time we've compared numbers, it comes back exactly the same. We'll go over that in just a second. But my point in all of that is, do I think that the masks work? Probably not. Do I think that the mask mandates work? Absolutely 100% do not work. But the one thing that I will say in the positive of Mayors Woodfin and Reed, even though I think they shouldn't have done this, is this is the way it was supposed to work from the beginning. Governor Ivey's mask mandate was unconstitutional, and it was wrong. Even if it hadn't been unconstitutional, it was wrong for her to put a statewide mask mandate on communities, some of which are very densely populated, at least by Alabama standards, like the cities of Birmingham and Huntsville and Mobile, and have that same mandate apply to slap out. And, you know, Wioka and, and uh, some of the other just tiny little dots on a map. It made no sense to have a blanket order for communities that were so radically different. And that's the reason that I'm not just a libertarian on the issues when it comes to uh, when it comes to, you know, favoring liberty, I'm also a federalist in the sense that I think that government business should be handled at the lowest level possible. Now, some things the local level can't do, and so they have to kick it, kick that bucket up the, uh, up to the state level, or, or you know, maybe to the national level on some issues. I understand that, but generally speaking, matters should always be handled on the lowest level possible because that tends to be where people are both the most accountable and the measures are the most effective and make the most sense for that community. Putting a blanket order on a city like Montgomery and have that also apply to uh, Marbury, Alabama, and Deetsville, that doesn't make any sense because they're wildly different communities. And so as much as I dislike the fact that Mayor Woodfin and Mayor Reed put these into place, this is the way it was supposed to happen from the beginning. It should have been the mayors making these decisions from the start. And am I perturbed by the fact that my mayor is a moron and probably would have had one in place all this time anyway and, and actually continues to have one even after the statewide mandate expired? Yeah, I'm pretty upset about that. I'm, I'm not happy about Mayor Reed doing that. And by the way, I even invited him on the show and I would have been fair and I, and I told him that, that I was going to give him an interview. I was going to give him as much time as he wanted to explain all of this. Never got a call back. Uh, I called him, I emailed him, I got in touch with his publicity people. Not so much as a uh, call to say, no, we're not interested, don't call again. Not even that. So I, I gave him ample opportunity to come and defend himself. Would have loved to have the mayor on, on here. I, I've met him a couple times, and it, I would have given him a tough interview, but it would have been fair. I wasn't going to sandblast him. Um, but, you know, he, he doesn't want to answer those questions, and the reason that he doesn't want to answer those questions, I believe is because he knows he has no good answers for those things. He wants to do it because it signals to the, the woke left that he is a member of the woke brigade. And that's what he cares about the most, because the second that Mayor Reed gets an opportunity to take a job bigger than Mayor of Montgomery, he is going to do it and never look back. 
And that's been his M.O. since the beginning. He's always seen the mayorship of Montgomery as merely a stepping stone to bigger and better things. And when it comes to this, he has no intention of doing that because it doesn't score many points with the left. It's not going to get him on CNN. It's, it's not going to increase his platform amongst those who he needs to increase his platform with, people on the left at the national level. Ergo, he has no real, real reason or rationale to do an interview like this. But what's funny about Mayor Reed's orders, and I did go through it, the requirements are that you must wear a mask if you cannot distance yourself more than six feet from other people that are not of your household. Which is funny on a number of levels, because remember that this order has only been in effect for a little less than a week. And the CDC, nearly a month ago, said that the six feet thing was completely arbitrary, which we said from the beginning, and really three feet is probably fine. I mean, Dr. Fauci himself actually suggested this. Now, granted, Dr. Fauci said a thousand different things on whether or not that works, but my point is the new guidelines actually say three feet apart, Mayor Reed went with six feet anyway for no apparent reason other than he wanted to. Uh, it is a completely arbitrary number. Three feet is a completely arbitrary number, but my point is he's not even keeping up to date with his own people on his side that would be you know, presenting it that way, and he's still going with the one that is more obtrusive. Also, he said that masks are not required when eating, which, by the way, Obviously, you have to take the mask off when eating. I'm not advocating for the mask not making an exception here. Just saying that I, I love how you're in like this magical force field of once you're eating, you're no longer at risk of transmitting the virus. Look, you're either at risk of transmitting the virus or you're not. We can't say, well, you're not at risk of transmitting the virus as long as you're wearing a mask. But if you're eating, there's an exception where all of a sudden it's really not that dangerous. It's either dangerous or it's not dangerous. And, and this is one of the reasons that I've said that from the beginning, this whole mask mandate is absurd, is that it makes a whole bunch of provisions that don't make sense. Uh, they put barriers between the booths and, and restaurants. I mean, you, even uh, institutions that I like, restaurants that I like have done this, and I'm just looking at it like, right, because the virus, you know, it's not like it's airborne or anything and can float over the barriers. <laughs> Some of the measures that they've done have just been completely absurd. But another thing that was the most striking to me out of everything in the mayor's mask order, and this has been true for mask ordinances all over the country. So I'm not just picking on Mayor Reed, though, even though I am. I'm picking on uh, lawmakers at large that continue to have a mask mandate in place. There is no exception for someone that has either already had the virus or somebody that has been vaccinated. And that doesn't make any sense. Why would that not be the case? If we believe that the vaccines work, and by the way, I believe that they do work. This is not me making an anti-vaxxer stance. I'm saying that the vaccines do work. They're the ones that obviously do not believe that they work because if they did, they would not require people that have been vaccinated to have a mask on. That's the point of getting vaccinated, is that the point of vaccines is you're no longer at risk to get the disease. That's the point of a vaccine. I'm the one that's saying, yes, I believe in the vaccine. I think that it probably works. The studies have shown that you have anywhere, depending on which vaccine you're taking, anywhere from an 80% to a 95% chance of not getting the virus, and therefore it, it has a great mitigation of your risk, 
and greatly lowers the chances of you getting severely sick if you do happen to get the virus. Ergo, if you've gotten the vaccine, you ought to be taking your mask off. And by the way, if they want to incentivize people to take the vaccine, that is the number one thing that they can do is say, hey, once you've got the vaccine, you don't have to worry about the mask anymore. But nobody on that side does it. Nobody on the left is saying that. And I can't for the life of me understand why, because that is the number one thing to motivate people to take the vaccine if that is your intended goal. See, the problem is that is not their intended goal. It's about power and being able to control people. It is not about keeping people healthy or mitigating their risk. Same thing with people that have already had the virus. If you've already had it, the risk is extremely low. When we're looking at people that have been reinfected, we're talking about numbers in the double digits in a country of 327 million people. I mean, the, the danger of getting reinfected is extremely low. And of the people that did get reinfected, their second round with this thing was incredibly mild because they already had a great deal of immunity built up from the first time. And so the risk for that is extremely low, and yet we continue to pretend like the mask is somehow far more important than natural immunity or vaccinated immunity. But ultimately, I mean, I guess that should be par for the course, because again, this thing was never about keeping people safe. It was never about keeping people healthy. It was never about slowing the spread. It was always about power and control. And Mayor Woodfin and Mayor Reed and, and hundreds of other elected officials that are in favor of the mask mandate across this country, they're terrified of not being terrified. They are terrified of losing the power of having the pandemic to lord over people. Now, some of them probably understand this and, and use it more effectively than others. I don't know if that's really Mayor Reed's intention. But the point is, the movement as a whole, that is the goal. It's about power and control. It's not about keeping people safe. Because if it was, then if you already had it or you had already been vaccinated, there would be no reason nobody calling for you to wear a mask. Even if they believed the mask work, it wouldn't make any sense to make those people wear it, of all people. But here's the thing. The masks don't work. They've never worked. All of the data has shown us that the mask mandates for sure don't work. Again, th there's been some lab studies that people wearing certain masks in 95s in a certain way, people that have professional PPE training that understand how to wear a mask property, uh, properly, we can replicate that with people in labs. We can do that, which means there is potential that they could help outside if they're wearing the mask properly and they're wearing the proper kind of mask. There's been no studies done on these cloth masks that those things are actually workable in a real-life situation with somebody that doesn't actually know how to properly wear a mask. However, we know for a fact, even though there is some science that suggests the mask might have some effectiveness, we know for a fact the mask mandates have zero effectiveness. We know that for a fact because we've seen it play out over and over again. And to prove my point, I'm not even going to use old data that I've already used. I'm going to show you some new stuff. So you can see this right here. This is a current map. I took this today, and it looks at the past 60 days of COVID hotspots in the United States. This is from the Mayo Clinic. You notice anything about all of the states that are dark red? the ones that have the closest to 100 per 100,000 people on average daily cases, it's uh, Minnesota and Michigan and Illinois 
in Pennsylvania, in New York, in Massachusetts, and... Huh. That's weird. It's a bunch of states that currently have mask mandates. Now, the only one I see on there that is bright red, that has, does not have a mask mandate right now, is Florida. And, you know, Florida is experiencing a bump in cases, but the overwhelming majority of your average daily ca cases there have come from states that currently have mask mandates. And Florida is not even a great example just because it has, I believe, the fourth or fifth oldest population of elderly in the United States, which are by far the most vulnerable to the disease. And the other states that have a older, an older population than them are states like Rhode Island that have extremely small populations. And so as far as the big states go, it has way more old people than any of the other big states. And yet despite this, what we're looking at is Florida is about middle of the pack on average daily cases over the past 60 days. And all the other states that are in the red right there, all of them have mass mandates. To further prove this point, let's look at the ones from today. This is again from the Mayo Clinic. You can see these are daily cases per 100,000 people. So again, adjusted for population, and it's pretty much the same map. I mean, it's blue instead of red, but all the really, really dark blue places, all of them are places that currently, right now, have mask mandates. If the mask mandates worked, that would not be the case. And I, I don't know how else to put it. It's just that simple. The data does not back up the claim that mask mandates have any effectiveness whatsoever. And if we were going to look at the real measure, the, the most important measure, because I've always said, I'm not saying that cases and, and testing and hospitalizations are a useless measure because those are good in certain situations and it's good that we know those things. But what's far more important is the death rate because that's how we should be measuring whether or not we're doing something actually good or effective, right? Because the ultimate goal is keeping people alive. And so looking at the death rate adjusted for population, we get a pretty good sense of this. And so let's go ahead and look at the states that have the highest deaths per capita related to COVID. You can see there, and I'm not going to read them all off, but uh, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Mississippi, you, you, see, you get the idea. Those are the ones with the highest per capita. Now, I want you to see exactly the same map, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to highlight all of the states that currently have a mask mandate in place in red. Huh. Would you look at that? One, two, three, and four. All of the top four states with the highest deaths per capita have mask mandates to this day. And then after that, you've got Connecticut at number 7, Pennsylvania at number 11, New Mexico at 14, Illinois at 15, and Michigan at 20. Now remember, about half the states have gotten rid of their mask mandates. And yet we have 9 out of the top 20, so about half. About half. So, in other words, it seems that there is no correlation whatsoever with a lower death rate and mask mandates. Isn't that interesting? It's almost as though the mask mandates, as I've been saying for months now, do not work. They have no effect on whether or not the you, you have higher case rates or uh, deaths. But ultimately, it's like I've been saying for a while now. The reason is because it's not about health, it's not about safety, it's about control and fear.
They want you to be afraid. They want you to be dependent upon the government. They want you to believe in them to keep them safe, to keep you safe. And that is why they continue down this road, even though all of the data points in the opposite direction. Because at the end of the day, people like Mayor Reed and Mayor Woodfin are science deniers. They can see the science. They can see that the vaccine protects you and say, well, we've still got to have masks. They can see that natural immunity protects you and they say, but we've still got to have masks for those people. They can see that the mask mandates do nothing effective at all. They say, but we've still got to do it. I mean, it just makes sense to be on the safe side, right? Well, uh, I actually got into a debate with somebody earlier this week and they said, well, yeah, but the mask mandates are better than nothing. I literally just compared it to nothing. That, that was the literal control. Nothing. No mask mandate. I compared it to nothing and the results were in that nothing had exactly the same results as a mask mandate. And so this idea, what's well, better than nothing? Um, no, it's actually not. I just compared it to nothing. And so uh, it, it just it does not make sense to continue down this road. None of this makes any sense. So another big local story that came out this week, Senator Tommy Tuberville was one of only six senators to vote against hate crime legislation. And the reason that I say that is because I, hate crime is one of the dumbest names for this thing because if it's a hate crime, isn't all violent crime hate crime? Like if you beat somebody over the head with a stick, that's a hate crime. If you're trying to kill someone, that's a hate crime. It doesn't matter if you're the same race, a different race, whatever your motivation, if you're committing violent crimes against people, you hate that person. That's just the way that this works. And so it's an absurd premise. But Tuberville, one of only six U.S. senators, so a lot of Republicans voted for this thing, to vote against the hate crime legislation that is aimed at protecting Asian Americans. So all hate crime legislation is redundant, like I said, because all of the things that would be illegal are just now double super illegal. Like attacking somebody and, and shooting them or hitting them with your hands or throwing stuff at them, all that stuff's illegal. All hate crime legislation does is it says, well, now it's double super illegal. But, but it was illegal before. It was, it was already illegal. And another thing, too, this should be handled at the local level. Even if I believed that hate crime legislation were a good thing that actually did something productive and weren't redundant, I still would say it's something that should happen at the state level. There is no reason for the federal government to get involved in this. It is beyond the mandate given to them by the Constitution, and the Tenth Amendment clearly says that if that power is not given to them by the Constitution, it remains with the people or the states. Plain and simple. However, this went through, and now you've got hate crime legislation on the books, but Tuberville was one of the ones that voted against it, and his rationale made a lot of sense. Now, mine would have just been, well, it's unconstitutional. I, that, that would have been the end of that conversation. However, he actually gave a rationale that, that makes a lot of sense as well. Because he said it creates a database for people to report incidents with no penalty of false reporting. And that is essentially what this bill does. Because it would give people the opportunity to anonymously comment, basically. And that would create a database for an incident. But there's no trial, no due process. Uh, it, it also does not prosecute somebody, at least not in for being in the database itself. They can prosecute as of the results of investigating things in the database. But it would create a federal database that they could say, oh, we have this many incidents of violence against Asian people. 
But the problem is, is that those are not cases that went through. Those are not cases that the person was proven guilty or that they even proved that race was involved in it at all. It's just reported. And this is one of the things that Democrats undoubtedly would use as a cudgel to try to get their way or try to prove their point that hate crimes are on the rise when they're really not just people reporting hate crimes are on the rise. And that, that is really the problem here is that they're wanting to use it as a political tool, but even if they didn't, it's still bad legislation regardless. So there is one study, and, and this was the justification for this, there is one study that shows that there is a, uh, a rise in potential hate crimes, and, and I love this. This is actually taken straight from the article that was done on Tuberville voting against this from AL.com. Check this out. The Senate opposed... The Senate opened debate Wednesday on legislation confronting the rise of potential hate crimes against Asian Americans, a growing problem during the coronavirus. <laughs> uh, I love the verbiage there, potential hate crimes, a rise in potential hate crimes. See, the funny thing is they're already doing it. The reason that Tuberville voted against this thing is because he said, I don't want there to be some kind of database where people just report crimes, they don't look into them, they don't investigate them, they just have them reported, and then dem Democrats will use that as a political tool to try to get their way in the future, trying to point to this as justification, even though these are just things that have been reported, not things that have been looked into. It's not an actual increase in incidents. It's just the allegation that there's been an increase in incidents. And the reaction by the leftist media, and I'm including AL.com in that, is... Uh, but there's been a rise in potential hate. They're doing it already, you see. They're saying that there are potential hate crimes, therefore we should be alarmed and we need to do something about it. I, I don't care about potential hate crimes. I care about crimes that have been committed against people, and if you can show me there's been an increase of that, and, and if it is racially based, then we need to know that. We need to know that to help us solve the problem, because if that's the case, that is a real problem that we need to look into. But they need to make the case for that first. They can't just say there's been a rise in potential hate crimes and then call it a day and say this means that we need to take some kind of action. But that's the assumption that AL.com tries to give here. So, so far, in case you're wondering, there have really only been two cases of uh, Asian hate related to the coronavirus, which is the assertion that you just saw in AL.com. The first is pretty clear-cut. I mean, that is a legitimate case of somebody being afraid of the coronavirus and attacking an Asian person for no reason. That did happen. Once. In a nation of 327 million people, one dude thought that Asians were to blame for this, and because of that, took it out on a person. Because he apparently was attacking an Asian person and was yelling out, you gave us coronavirus, you gave us coronavirus. Okay, you know, that that's one in your favor, Democrats. That is definitely a case of somebody blaming all Asian people for the coronavirus and taking it out on that one person. So, yes, that, that is a case of it. But in, in a nation of 327 million, one case is not cause for a feder of, of, an overhaul of a federal law. That's just simply an overreaction there. And as horrible as that was, it's still not a justification for the action that was taken. It's an overreaction to this whole thing. The second case, it was a person in New York City and apparently was committed by a, a guy that was attacking this Asian person 
because of the the coronavirus, and that was apparently the, the stated, at least according to the story that I read, according to that, the person said that he was upset at this person for a number of reasons, including that they were Asian and had the coronavirus. Okay, that's, that's legitimate. The, the problem is, it was done by a black guy. Yeah, so apparently the whole white supremacy thing and, and being xenophobic and wanting America to remain a white nation, not really that guy's motivation for not liking Asian people. Uh, it's astounding to me that of, of the two cases in the entire country, there were only two of them. One of them happens to be a black guy. I mean, if you're somebody trying to push this narrative that white supremacy is driving uh, Trump supporters and... Um, just white people in general to hate Asian people because of the coronavirus. You couldn't have asked for a worse hand to, to have to work with than that one guy actually committing what would, they would qualify as a hate crime, even though, like I said, all crimes are hate crimes. And then a black guy doing it, which kind of hard to connect that to white supremacy in the clan. Maybe he's one of those rare black clans mem members, you know, uh, the one like Spike Lee or the, the guy from the Chappelle show. Maybe he's a black clansman. I mean, I guess that could be the case. But nonetheless, uh, let's go ahead and look at this. This is from that same that same article in AL.com. And I love this. The bill is most substantive, the most substantive congressional response to what has been alarming rise in racist sentiment against Asian Americans, fueled in part by derogatory language about the virus's origins in China. Donald Trump, while president, played into that narrative with derisive nicknames for the virus. The, mo the moment harks back to an earlier eras of racism against the Chinese Americans, Japanese Americans, and other, uh, others of Asian heritage in this country. Okay, so a couple things here. First of all, I do think it's hilarious how when all these left-leaning publications remind us that Americans have in turn Japanese Americans, which of course was awful, they kind of forget to mention that it was their hero FDR that did it. And by the way, the FDR Supreme Court that he packed and tried to, to skew in his favor so that they would give him what he wanted and allow him to in turn Japanese Americans, that was FDR, their, their patron saint. They always kind of forget to include that little detail. I've noticed that. The second part of that is they tried to claim that Donald Trump calling it the coronavirus, the Chinese virus, the Wuhan virus, all of which is accurate, by the way, that somehow that drummed up all this anti-Asian sentiment. But what I don't understand is if that's racist and that's going to make people racist against Asian people, why is it not racist when we call it the UK variant? We're just going to beat up everybody with a British accent now that they're calling it the UK variant? What about the African variant? Because that's a thing now, too. We also have a, a New York variant. Are we going to beat up everybody that has a Bronx accent? I mean, has AOC been, been beaten to death because she's a New Yorker? I mean, gosh, I would hope not. But you know what I'm saying here? That They act as though mentioning that this virus has a specific location is, is somehow racist, and that's just absurd. I mean, the West Nile virus came from the West Nile. You know what we didn't do? Beat up people from South America. <laughs> that, that didn't happen then. It's not going to happen now. There are not people that are blaming this. Somehow, every other time we've referred to the Spanish flu or the German measles or Ebola, all of which are named after the locations from which they originated, 
Nobody thought it was racist then, but all of a sudden, this one time, when they just happened to need a political narrative to try to get rid of their least favorite president, Donald J. Trump, now all of a sudden it's a racist thing, and, and we've got to figure we, we've got to stop that. Just referring to a virus by its point of origin. Man, they're really stretching on this one. But here's the thing. Trump was never blaming Chinese people. He never blamed the Chinese. Now, he blamed China's government for a lot of things, including the coronavirus, and he did that repeatedly, and I agree with him. But he never blamed Chinese people as a whole. And anybody that did interpret it that way, if there was anyone, and I don't know of any incidents where they did, anybody that would have interpreted it that way would be a moron. And they should be blamed for whatever they did, but that has nothing to do with President Trump. But we don't even have an incident of that. Trump blamed the government of China, not the Chinese people. And here's what I would like to remind our friends on the left. If, you're, if this is the road you really want to go down, you're going to be gung-ho about this and you're going to say, yep, Calling something, when you blame a nation's government for something, it is tantamount to racism against the predominant race of that government. What are you going to do with Israel? I mean, that's the, the shield you guys all hide behind, right? When you're super critical of Israel and when Rashida Tlaib says things like Israel shouldn't exist and renames it Palestine on the map in her office. She's like, no, 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 I'm, I'm not anti-Semitic, even though I've said blatantly racist and anti-Semitic things about the Jews, and I'm good buddies with Farrakhan and several other anti-Semites from the Women's March movement. No, 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 I'm not anti-Semitic, I'm just being critical of Israel's government. Okay, but if we're applying the same standard that you guys are applying to Donald Trump about the China virus and blaming Chinese government for that, saying that that's the same thing as being racist against Chinese people, then why would Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar and AOC and all the people that are critical of Israel's policies, why are they not anti-Semites and Jewish and Nazis and all the other things that you guys call people? See, it's a complete double standard when it comes to stuff like that. But ultimately, the only stats showing a rise in hate crimes against Asian people, or at least the only one that I could find, that actually comes from the Center for Study of Hate and Extremism at California State University at San Bernardino. And they released this graph, which I've seen in a number of different news articles, but this is the graph that supposedly proves that there's been a sharp uptick in anti-Asian hate. Well, there's a couple things that you need to notice about this. First of all, you'll notice that they, they took a, about 20 of the the nation's biggest cities. I think they actually took 16, but... Uh, anyway, they, they took a survey of crime and anti-Asian crime specifically in the biggest cities in the United States, and you'll notice that by far the biggest spike is New York City. L lots of New York uh, Trump supporters in New York City, apparently, there and in Los Angeles and Boston and Seattle and San Jose, California and San Francisco. Interesting how all these deep, deep blue cities apparently have just hordes of MAGA people running around uh, saying insulting things and attacking Asian people, and apparently this constitutes a crisis that Donald Trump caused somehow in these deep blue cities. So that's the thing that they use as proof. But here's the problem. As you'll notice, the vast majority of the increase comes from New York. 
There is an increase in some other cities, sure, but that particular one with New York, that increase from nineteen or sorry, from 2019 to 2020, that's about an 800% increase, and that accounts for the vast majority of the increase in Asian hate crimes. And the other thing that you may notice is that it only looks at those very specific cities. And it's not a terrible sample size, but it's also not a great one, especially when you are basically making the suggestion that this is a bunch of Trump supporters and you only pulled blue areas. That doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to me, but nonetheless, this is what they did. But the biggest problem with this actually has nothing to do with the numbers or where they took the survey. The biggest problem is how they counted it. They were looking at only 2019 and 2020. And the way that they measured the increase in crimes, they counted any incident that involved an Asian person where they were on the receiving end. And that included assaults, but it also included things like verbal abuse or people just saying mean things to people. I'm, I'm not kidding. This is literally how they measured it. If somebody made a, a mean comment to an Asian person, whether or not it was coronavirus connected and it was recorded in the records that they looked at, they counted that as an incident. This is one of the most absurd things. I mean, would it be a terrible thing to, let, let's say that there was someone who was legitimately racist and legitimately blamed all Chinese people, the, the perfect example of this, according to the left. Let's say that that person was out there and that they, they genuinely don't like Asian people because of the coronavirus. And they say a, a mean racist slur to them. Is that bad? Yeah, that's really, really bad. It's a terrible thing. They shouldn't do it. Is it a hate crime? Really? Getting pretty fast and loose with the, the terminology here. I, I think that we can do better than this when it I just, I don't understand that. We, we can do better than that. This does not constitute a hate crime. But nonetheless, this is their standard that they went with. And this is actually kind of goes back to one of the main reasons that I don't even like hate crime legislation and don't think hate crimes are real. It's because they're subjective. They're completely subjective. Like whether or not somebody stabbed a guy, that's pretty objective. You can prove that or you can fall short and not be able to prove that. But either way, that, that's pretty objective. Like if the guy gets stabbed and the other guy's standing there holding a knife, you can objectively deduce that that's what happened. But that same guy that stabs somebody and one happens to be white and one happens to be black, well, it could be racially motivated. It could be because the guy you know, slept with his girlfriend, or the guy stole money from him, or one of them's a drug dealer and the other guy didn't pay him. I mean, there's a, a thousand different scenarios that could play out there that would have nothing to do with race. But so often, we start racking this up in the, the column of hate crime, partly because of the left, the demand for hate crimes greatly outweighs the supply, and because of that, they genuinely want there to be more hate crimes because it justifies more of their agenda, and so they'll count things as hate crimes whether or not they have good evidence for it. And this last study that we looked at is actually a perfect example of that. Just somebody saying something mean to an Asian person if they happen to not be an Asian person. Okay, well, that could be because they're racist, but it could also just be because they ticked them off or they cut them off in traffic. Like, it could, it could have nothing to do with their race and nothing to do with coronavirus. And yet they use this as evidence to prove their point that, oh, Trump saying this about China, that... That must have been the reason that this is taking place. It's absurd. It's absolutely ridiculous, but this is the thing that they keep running with. But ultimately, 
hate crimes are subjective. You have to make a, a judgment there, and then they, they want to sentence people extra for that? That None of this makes any logical sense. It, it violates the principle of equal protection under the law. Because if you wanted equal protection under the law, then it would be just as wrong to stab a white person to stab a white person as it would be for a white person to stab a black person, or vice versa. It doesn't make any sense to have an extra penalty or, or try to make it double super illegal because it might have been racially motivated. I mean, that's a terrible thing to do, but at the end of the day, when you commit violence against somebody, the motivation isn't all that important. It may be important in, in trying to determine whether or not he had motive, something like that, but it's not important in deciding whether or not this person deserves justice or more justice or any of that stuff. Just treat human beings like human beings as an equals, and if they are a depraved lunatic that hurt somebody, whether it was for their skin color or whether it had nothing to do with skin color, then those people ought to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Equality under the law means not considering race and not considering those external factors. Now, another little local story, and we won't spend a ton of time on this, but I just found it too freaking amusing. The Amazon plant that's going up in Bessemer, you may notice if you kept up with this that there was a really big national fight going on as to whether or not they would unionize, and Democrats, including some big names like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders, they actually got in on this, and the DNC spent money on this. They, they, they sunk money into ads trying to convince people to vote in favor of unionization, and, and they spent a lot of time and effort on this. And what happened is not only did the vote to unionize fail, 70% of the people working at this plant voted no when it came to unionization. Now, I find this hilarious on a number of levels. Mostly, I just find it funny that they wasted a lot of time and money from the Democrats. That's what I find probably the most amusing. But the other thing is, Democrats really, really suck at convincing people that they need your money. And that's why they like compelling people instead. This is the reason that they wanted to make it to where the people in Amazon had to unionize. Because then those people would be required to pay a little bit of their money or actually, I don't think that they would have been in this situation, but there, there would have been people that would join the union inevitably. And in most states, the way that it works is if you're working at that plant, you have to pay dues into that. And the reason Democrats like that is because one of their number one donators are always labor corporations. In other words, unions. So because of that, they really like unions and, and they're a big source of income for the Democrats. And the workers are looking at that, especially the ones in Alabama, and they're like, no, I really don't want to send my money to causes I don't like, and I don't think the union will really benefit me, so I'm just going to go without a union. I find that whole thing hilarious, that this thing wound up being a massive waste of time for them. But it's funny how Democrats, they love compelling people to do their to give them money, but they're really bad at convincing them that they're actually you know, directly benefiting them in doing so. And so they, they'd rather them just be compelled to do it. They, they have the same idea with taxes. They'd rather legally force you to give the money than to have to convince you that they're actually doing good things that are helping you in order for you to give it to them. They'd rather you just, you know, have to give it to them at gunpoint. But we do have an interview with John Eidsmo. 
but before that, I did want to mention this because John and I actually pre-recorded this interview and the Colonel will be on in a minute, but big news about the Supreme Court broke between when I recorded this interview and, and now. And so I'm going to go ahead and sort of delve into that. If you don't know already, the Supreme Court, uh, the, the, when it comes to the Supreme Court, the Democrats have now released a plan to expand the Supreme Court to 13 judges. And uh, Joe, this comes as no surprise, right? Because Joe Biden announced just a few days ago that there was going to be a commission looking at expanding the court. And, and we all know that in the debates and, and in the weeks leading up to the election, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris both repeatedly refused to answer the question of whether or not they would pack the court because they intended to pack the court. I mean, that's, that's an easy slam dunk if you're not going to. All you have to say is, nope, not going to pack the court. Okay, that's the end of it. But they wouldn't say that because they wanted to be able to uh, pack the court and not have that albatross of having said they wouldn't around their necks. And they knew that this was unpopular because the vast majority of the American people think packing the court would be a bad idea. So after Joe Biden announces this commission, he looked at expanding the court. You see, not packing the court, it's expanding the court. Because that sounds far less sinister and, and you know, like he's trying to just make the court do whatever he wants, which is exactly the reason that they're going with expanding. And you got to love the media. The complacent mainstream media continues to shill for the Democrats. And whenever they make a language change that they change right along, along with it. So you can see here, this is just a few media examples. These were just the only ones I could fit on the screen. There's actually several more. This is just a half dozen of the news organizations and you'll notice that they all use the word expand over and over again like clockwork. And by the way, you'll also notice in there, Fox News is among those that are using this verbiage. And this is the reason that it's very difficult for Republicans to win political fights is because we allow the other side to control the language. It's something that has infuriated me for years, but whenever they make a language change, whenever they change the wording of something, we just kind of accept it. And we go along with it and we go along with their premise. This is an absurd and stupid strategy, but even people on the right, including people at Fox News that at least are not hostile to conservative ideas, I wouldn't call them conservative, but they're certainly not against conservative ideas, and some of their hosts, like Hannity and Ingram, they're at least conservative. But even the people at Fox News continue to change the language with the Democrats' fancy. And so it's expanding the court because that polls much better with people than packing the court, which sounds very evil and underhanded, which of course it is. But now that bill is there proposing that they expand the court to 13. And I want to play a clip of a politician that thinks that packing the court is a really bad idea. I mean, thinks that it's, to use his own words, boneheaded. And so I, I want you to watch this clip of a politician. This is Joe Biden from 1983 on court packing. Clearly had the right to send to the United States Senate and the United States Congress a proposal to pack the court. It was totally within his right to do that. He violated no law. He was legalistically absolutely correct, but it was a bonehead idea. It was a terrible, terrible mistake to make. Tell and him, it Jim. put in question for an entire decade the independence of the most significant body, including the Congress, in my view, the most significant body 
in this country, the Supreme Court of the United States of America. The president had the right to do that. He uh, was totally within his power, and his, uh, his objective was seen clearly. Okay, so a couple things off of that. First of all, it is amazing to me that the media and the left continues to tell me that, oh no, Joe's sharp, he's on it, he's still got all of his faculties. You can't look at a video of 1983 Joe Biden and compare it to modern day Joe Biden and tell me that that guy hasn't lost several steps. I mean, that's like looking at a, a 1970, would have been the 76 Mustang, when it was first rolled off of the plant in Detroit and looking at one that's all rusted over and when you press the gas, sometimes it just doesn't go and saying, yeah, it's the same. It hasn't really changed at all. Looking at the old clips of Joe Biden, like back in the Clarence Thomas uh, hearings when they were going through his confirmation and that kind of thing, it just makes you more aware of the fact that this dude slowed down a lot. It's, it's not a little bit, it's a lot. And, you know, Joe Biden was kind of a weakling and a pander even then, but he could at least articulate a point. And by the way, he happens to be 100% right in his analysis of FDR. That was a stupid idea. It called him to question the legitimacy of the court for over a decade. Um, courts that looked at some of the cases that were decided at that point afterward, they had to really scratch their heads on and go, oh, we don't even know if we want to accept that because of when it happened. And exactly the same thing will happen if the Democrats do that now. It's just funny that it happens to be Joe Biden that is bringing that point up. And here we are years later where Joe Biden is planning on doing exactly what he called FDR a bonehead for doing. But nonetheless, there's FDR, there's Joe Biden talking about FDR. And here's my, my point in all of that. If your principles change based on your circumstances, in other words, if you have a set of principles, and then all of a sudden it becomes very inconvenient for you to hold to those principles, and so those principles change, then you didn't have principles. You never had principles. You had a series of preferences. Joe Biden in that clip was making a point about the dangers of packing the court, warning Republicans not to do it, which was the correct thing to do. When President Trump was in office, I was against him packing the court then too. It would have been nice to have a, a you know, a seven, seven justice majority where, you know, every single case that comes up goes exactly my way. Yeah, that would have been nice, but it would have been illegitimate. It would have been the wrong way to do it. Frankly, I'd be fine with this going down to one justice and it just being Clarence Thomas. <laughs> I think that, that would be the ideal situation. But nonetheless, when we're looking at the court and we're, we're talking about the makeup of it, Joe Biden was 100% correct there. And the fact that he just completely changed his principles means that he never had them to begin with. He didn't really believe in them. He just wanted to make a point. He preferred that people not do it then. He prefers that he do it now. Ergo, his principles are different, which means that he didn't really ever actually have principles. He just had preferences. And that's something that is true in your own life as well. But here's the other thing that you really need to consider when it comes to this question of packing the court. Because I'm seeing the argument being made over and over again by people on the left, by the media. They're saying that, well, we have to pack the court because of how unbalanced it is now. 
Trump just happened to have, and, and by the way, it was by sheer luck. It's not like President Trump did anything to make this happen. It's not like he packed the court and, and added justices. It just so happened that he inherited from his previous president, because they, they held over and didn't vote on Merrick Garland, he inherited one appointment in Neil Gorsuch. And then he just had Kennedy retire and Ginsburg pass away. And so because of that, he got to a point three. Well, now they're saying because of how unbalanced the court is that we have to correct it. And that would hold a lot more water, except their plan is not to balance the court, but to take over it. What is the next odd number after nine? If my math is right, I believe it's 11. So theoretically, what they could do is because there are five pretty solid conservative justices on the court now, and then there's Roberts, who I consider him one of the liberal justices at this point. I consider Kavanaugh the swing vote. But nonetheless, Kavanaugh's actually been pretty good here recently. We've got five solid conservative justices and four that tend to go liberal, even though, you know, sometimes Roberts crosses the aisle and goes back to his Republican roots. I, I consider that crossing the aisle for Roberts now. If they add four liberal justices, that's seven. That's seven liberal justices and Roberts on top of it, which would really be probably more than likely eight, which means they have a majority and would win every case that they get. If this was about balance, and I don't believe that it is, and I never believed that it was, but if it was about balance, what they would do is they would add two justices so that some cases would go their way, some cases would go the other way. But that's not what happens. That's not what they're suggesting. They're suggesting 13, so that all of the cases would go their way. This is not about balance. And the reason for this is simple. Democrats see the Supreme Court exactly the way they see the legislature and the executive. They're all the same to them. Because with them, there is no such thing as checks and balances. There is no such thing as a difference of roles when it comes to government. There is no separation of powers at all. Because the left only sees government as doing one thing, and that is the thing that gives them what they want. As I've said for a long time, and you're probably sick of hearing it by now, leftism is an alternative religion. It's not a different political philosophy. It is a new religion. And what that religion believes is that government should do everything. Now, I won't go into detail on this because I've done it in hundreds of videos, but ultimately, if you believe government is your god, and you're a pagan, because that's what they are, they're just new pagans, they believe that what their god is supposed to do is answer their prayers. Their god is just supposed to give them things. Ergo, anybody that would stop their church or their god, in this case the government, from giving them things... That must be a heretic. And so what you're seeing now is them, with the Supreme Court, there's not all that separation of power in, in religion. And so they see the government as its goal is to give them things that they want. And anything that stops the government from doing that is an impediment. Ergo, the Supreme Court, when it stops them from getting things that they want, it must then be bad and it must be corrected. Just like some kind of religious apostasy. And so when that happens, now we must program government to give us what they want. You see, the only thing that leftists actually want the Supreme Court to do is to rubber stamp all of the things that they like and create new laws 
whenever they can't get something through the legislature or through executive orders. And they see, really, the Congress is the exact same thing. The only thing that Congress should do is pass laws that they like. Or, you know, occasionally repeal laws that they do not. And that's exactly the, the thing that the executive should do. There's no thought of whether or not, well, I'd like for this to happen, but that's really not the executive's role. So if we do that, we're going to have to do it through the Congress. They don't think like that. As a matter of practicality, sometimes they think that this would be the best strategy to get this change, but at the end of the day, they don't really care how it comes, they just want it done. Because they don't hold sacred the idea of separation of powers. They don't hold sacred the idea of checks and balances in a government that um, isn't unified like that, because they'd be fine with the dictator as long as the dictator was a person that they liked. And so, because of that, all they really want the, the Supreme Court to do is to rubber stamp everything that they like and occasionally create laws when they can't get it through any other way. In their mind, that's really the only thing that either the Supreme Court or any governing body at any level is ever supposed to do. That's just how they see it. Um, it's kind of the, the Pedro Sanchez school of politics. If you remember Napoleon Dynamite, Pedro goes, if you vote for me, all of your wildest dreams will come through. <laughs> And that was a sales pitch. I don't know how we plan to do any of that, but that, that was the sales pitch. And, and so that's how Democrats are. They think of government as the thing that's just supposed to make their wildest dreams come true. They don't see limited government, limited governing, governing power, or the individual roles of the governing bodies as something that they need to consider in all of that. But here's the thing, and I know that this is going to be unpopular amongst some of the other people that may be listening in my audience. This could be, could be the best thing that ever happened to us. Now, I don't think that this is going to happen. I, I very much doubt that Manchin and any of the other moderate, I think there's going to be a lot of moderate Democrats that are even against this. But if it were to go through, if they were to pack the court, if that happened, then the Republic would essentially be over, honestly, I could see the Republic going down in flames in the next four years. But if it happens, it could, and I'm just saying this is a, a possibility, it could be the fire that is lit up under the butts of our red state legislatures and governors. It might finally be the spark to cast doubt upon the things that the Supreme Court decides to where they say, um, the answer is no. You can rule on this if you want to. You can rule that we should have partial birth, birth abortion in this state. You can rule that we have to allow 65 or sorry, 35 year old men into the bathroom and the locker rooms with six year old girls to ogle them. You can rule that if you want, but we're not doing it. We ain't doing it. This is Alabama. Sorry, go somewhere else. You, you have a problem with it. Send the army down here and force them to make us do it. That's the only way you're getting that done here. Now, do I think Governor Ivey is going to do that? No, I do not think that Governor Ivey is do that. But some state governors might. Some legislators in the state of Alabama might. There has been a lack of willingness from the state legislatures to tell the federal government to stick it. And that is something that should have been happening for the past 200 years. And really, it was one of the most important checks and balances on the federal government from the very beginning. There were certain things that the federal government knew that it ought not do 
because the the state repercussions of it, the the states uh, reacting to it would have been too much for them to handle. It would have been a bridge too far. And it feels like, especially in my lifetime, there has never been a command that couldn't come down on high from Mordor or Washington, D.C., regardless, whichever name you want to use. That There is no order that could come down from there, especially from the Supreme Court, that once done, everybody just folds their arms and goes, huh, well, we've got to do it now. Let's just murder, you know, thousands of children in the womb because the Fed tells us we got us. Sorry, guys. Maybe. This will cause the legislatures and the governors in red states to get off their lazy butts and actually say no to the federal government for a change. Just a possibility. All right, speaking of that and speaking of the Supreme Court, we are going to go to our interview with Colonel John Eismo of the Foundation for Moral Law. That is coming up in just a second on Tactics. Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. And welcome back, everybody. Thanks so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you so much for being with us here on the program. Be sure to like and subscribe if you do enjoy this channel because that ensures that more people get to see my conservative content, which is really bad for the dark cyber overlords at YouTube. And so if you want to help us fight that battle, you certainly can do so by clicking like and or subscribe, preferably both. All right, my next guest on the program is somebody who's been a constitutional attorney for a number of years. He works with the Foundation for Moral Law and somebody that we've had on the program a number of times, specifically to discuss religious liberty issues, because that is his area of expertise. So without further ado, we welcome back to the program, John Eidsmo. Thank you so much for being on the program, Colonel. Caleb, it's great to be with you again to talk about some of these issues that are of great concern to you and me and our audience as well. Oh, absolutely. And I've got to say, just looking at, at the news recently, this has been something that's been kind of quiet. You haven't seen a ton of media coverage on it. But yet again, on Friday, the Supreme Court actually struck down a provision from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. I believe the fifth one they've done specifically with the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals so far, specifically on how states have been implementing restrictions on religious liberty when it comes to the coronavirus response. So could you talk to us a little bit about that and, and how this has been unfolding? Well, you are correct on that, Jacob. Or, I'm sorry, Caleb, you were correct That's on all right. That. It's another good Bible name. That's fine. And, <laughs> but, yes, the court has ruled on that, and one of the reasons we don't hear about it is it's not the narrative that the media wants us to know. What the media wants us to hear is that all those in authority are saying that we need to lock down, we need to close down, wear our masks, and mm -hmm. shut up. And when there is information to the contrary, or when authorities like the Supreme Court say to the contrary, then it seems like the media just kind of suppresses that, doesn't talk about it, or maybe puts it way over on page 18 or something. But you are correct that on several occasions, the Supreme Court has ruled in favor of religious liberty and against some of these COVID restrictions. Possibly the one that was most noteworthy was several months ago when the Supreme Court struck down 
Governor Cuomo's orders that restricted churches in the state of New York. Mm-hmm. And I particularly like what Justice Gorsuch said in that case when he said that even if the Constitution takes a holiday during an emergency, that holiday cannot become a sabbatical. In other words, right. you may be able to have some restrictions that are temporary, but you can't make those more long-term. They have to be as temporary as they possibly can be. Here in Alabama, of course, the governor has issued orders, and these have included masks. They've included social distancing for a while. These even required the churches not have more than nine people in attendance, 10 or or less than 10 is what it said. Mm -hmm. And even though those are no longer in effect, we still have a lawsuit going against the state of Alabama and the governor in particular on this because we believe that the past abuses were violations of free exercise of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, and a number of other rights. And we're hopeful that the court will see it that way as well. And what we were really concerned about is that under Alabama law, the governor could issue an order like this, but then at the end of the 60 days of the order, could simply extend it for another 60 days and another ad infinitum. Mm-hmm. And that's not what an emergency order is supposed to be. Fortunately, besides our lawsuit, there is also a bill in the legislature, one of the sponsors being Senator Watley, who was one of my law students, I'm proud to say. Right. But anyway, we have a, a bill there that would restrict the governor's powers in this area and so we'll see what comes out of that but the most recent in california deals with home churches that is worshiping at home and restrictions that california had placed into effect of restricting the number of people that could gather in these and the supreme court was a 5-4 ruling but the supreme court struck those orders down mm-hmm. one of the things that has been an issue in several of these cases involving state orders closing down churches has been equal protection. That is, when we're closing down churches, they're saying that you can only have a certain number of people meeting in a church, yet you can have a much larger number of people in Walmart or in the liquor store or other places like this without similar restrictions. And several of the courts have considered it very important that the state seemed to be treating religion more severely than the freedom to go to the liquor store or go to Walmart and so on. Yeah, and and, and I'm not somebody that thinks that it's always necessarily a sin for a Christian to to consume alcohol. I've, I've never been of that mind. But I will say it's a pretty good indication that our country may have lost their way when we're deeming the liquor stores essential and churches non-essential. That seems to me a pretty good sign we've gone off the rails at some point. Well, I would agree with that, and I would point out that the Constitution does not guarantee free exercise of liquor. It does not guarantee free exercise of shopping, but it does guarantee free exercise of religion. Mm -hmm. And so it isn't even a matter that religion needs to be given an equal position with these others. Actually, the U.S. Constitution and our founding fathers put religion in a favored position. Right. And uh, I know that some of the court cases, specifically ones written by Clarence Thomas, have kind of asserted that, even though he's saying, but but we need to at least get back to where they're treating it equally and not specifically persecuting it. 
Um, but one thing that I wanted to ask you about that, and I think that you hit on something that is incredibly important. I do not think that Governor Ivey is a tyrant, but I do think that she has abused her power and made some unconstitutional decisions in the past year. And so I don't think that she has abused it to the point that, that she's become tyrannical. However, this is not about Kay Ivey. This is about what could happen if we set precedent and we have somebody that actually is tyrannical or actually was hostile towards religion, because if they can ban people from going to church by just declaring it an emergency and they are able to extend that as long as they want, there is no check on that power, then what could happen if we had somebody that was not Kay Ivey that got into office that really wanted to close church just because they liked closing churches? And I would agree with you there. Um, frankly, I voted for Governor Ivey last time, mm -hmm. and not with the greatest of enthusiasm, but I did vote for her. But I would simply say that she is not Governor Whitmer of Michigan, but she's not Governor Nome of South Dakota either. She's somewhere in between. And, but I'd also raise some question as to how much in control of her own administration she is right now. And some of these orders may have been beyond what, what she wanted. There was a cartoon that I thought was pretty funny. It kind of maybe showed the situation pretty well, but it showed her giving a press conference when she's announcing her order. And she says, y'all stay home now unless you got to go someplace. Right, <laughs> which is, I actually but, did a uh, Out on the Town, which is a segment I do uh, in my truck when I'm riding around, and that was the point that I made is like, well, uh, so far the Alabama rules say that you can only leave the house if you have to go buy something or you have to uh, go exercise, or, as, and this is according to the letter of the law, anything that would maintain your daily routine. And I was like, well, wouldn't that just mean everything? Is, is there... The order, well, no, that was not the earlier order. That's one of the later orders. Okay, well, I, I was probably going off the more recent yeah, earlier was quite restrictive, but some of the later orders, mm -hmm. they had so many exceptions in them, and that's one of the complaints that we raised in our lawsuit as well, is that this order was void for vagueness. In other words, if it government order or if a statute mm -hmm. doesn't give you reasonable notice of what is prohibited and what is permitted, then it is considered to be a violation of due process, and we say that it is void for vagueness. And there were so many things in the order that said, make a reasonable effort to, to if possible, or if practical, things like that. But I think of many of those things, a reasonable person would not be able to tell what was allowed and what wasn't. And it was being applied in situations, for example, one of our plaintiffs in this case is a lady who drives a school bus for a public school. Mm -hmm. And she is saying that when you start school in the fall in Alabama in August, the temperature in a school bus can get up to 118 degrees. Right. And that if you're the driver and you're wearing a mask and cause your glasses to fog up, which doesn't make for safe driving and mm -hmm. doesn't cause kids to vomit into their masks and things like that. And then she'd say also what she was noticing the kids were doing is as soon as they get off the bus, they take off the mask and they wad it up and put it into their germy pocket and it stays there until next morning when they put it back on again to get on the bus. This doesn't sound sanitary. It doesn't sound healthy. And so there are all kinds of concerns like this. And I like the way you put it here that in your show, disagreement is not hate. 
And right. it seems like there it seems like there hasn't been enough real disagreement on this. Let me suggest something to your audience here, if I may. Go ahead. And I suggest this, not necessarily saying you need to agree with everything the this person is saying, but there's a man by the name of Christian Elliott who has posted something titled 18 Reasons I Won't Be Getting a COVID Vaccine. And if you just simply Google it, 18 Reasons I Won't Be Getting a COVID Vaccine, you'll find it right away. But okay. it is very, the information is very good. It is very well stated. Some of the things he points out and repeatedly here, he's saying, look, if I'm wrong on this, tell me so. I'd like to open discussion on this, but mm -hmm. pointing out that the law exempts these vaccine companies from liability in case there's something wrong here that points out that these vaccine companies like AstraZeneca and Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, that they have never before brought a vaccine to market, that they have had quite a bit of misconduct where they've been sued or prosecuted in the past. He points out that one of the things that we're concerned about here on this is that supposedly we these do not prevent the spread of COVID. So if you had a mask, you still need, or if you had the shot, you still need a mask and so on because you still could be a spreader. Well, one of our concerns has been the asystematic or asymptomatic spread. Mm -hmm. In other words, even if you don't have any symptoms, you still could be spreading it. So is giving the vaccine then increasing the possibility of asystematic, I'm sorry, I keep saying that wrong, asymptomatic right. spread. And another point he makes here, point 16, he says is the censorship and the complete absence of scientific debate. He says, let me just read you a portion here. He says, I can't help but get snarky here, so humor me. How did you enjoy all those nationally and globally televised, robust debates put on by public health officials and broadcast simultaneously on every major news station? Wasn't it great hearing from the best minds in medicine, virology, epidemiology, economics, and vaccinology, from all over the world as they vigorously and respectfully debated things like lockdowns, mask wearing, social distancing, vaccine efficacy and safety trials, how to screen for susceptibility to vaccine in injury, therapeutics. Wasn't it great seeing public health officials have their science questioned? Wasn't it great seeing the FDA panel publicly drill the vaccine makers in prime time as they stood in the hot seat? on tough questions about products of which they have no liability. Oh, wait, you didn't see those debates? No, you didn't, because they never happened. What happened instead was heavy-handed censorship of all but one narrative. And I think that's why so many people have become skeptical today. They keep hearing us being warned, you must believe science. Okay, then do I believe this scientist or that scientist? And if I believe this scientist, then do I believe what he said last week, this week, or next week? They change their opinions so often when we understand that, that this is all an uncertainty here, and we're all dealing freshly with some things. But each time they change it, they pronounce their new opinion with such dogmatism, and anybody who questions them is anti-science and pro-virus and everything else, 
And I think it is that dogmatism and authoritarianism that is causing many of us to be skeptical. Well, and I think that you understand this as well as somebody that is a, a fan of and an advocate for the First Amendment, just like I am. It never bodes well when one side of the argument wants to shut the other one up. If you have one side saying, yeah, let's let's talk about this, let's ask some questions, and the other side is saying, no, if you even differ in opinion, you are dangerous and your opinion should not get any oxygen. Generally speaking, not always, but generally speaking, that's a pretty good indication that the side trying to shut the other one up doesn't have a good argument. Very, very well said. And it brings to mind right now what's going on in Alberta, Canada, with mm -hmm. a couple of churches out there. And just after the Easter weekend, we were informed of the news about a church out there in Alberta, pastored by a Polish immigrant, a pastor who had grown up under communism in Poland and came to Canada thinking he would find freedom here and being very disturbed that recently there seemed to be some restrictions on the church here, similar to what he chafed under, under communism in Poland. And he had several police officials it was either a Good Friday or, a, or an Easter service. Several police officials come in to his church to interrupt his service and tell them that they had to shut down. And he refused to let them shut them down. He ordered them out. And as they stood there for a while, one member of the congregation simply turned over to the office and said, you don't have a warrant, you need to leave. And they did. And then another church, Grace Life Church, it is called, where mm -hmm. the state has closed down or the province has closed down the church and even put a fence around it to keep people from attending it but last sunday there were some 500 people gathered outside there to oppose those regulations and show support and the people that gathered outside well they're being we're being told here by the news media that these people were conspiracy theorists far right and other things like this and members of hate groups and so on well that's a term that's starting to irritate me hate groups what they mean by hate groups is groups we hate and but that's a good way to put it unfortunately but yeah i agree the hate seems to be coming from the other side and anyway one official is saying that these people are buying into all these conspiracy theories and there is so much wrong information being spread about COVID-19 and so on. Okay, if it's wrong information, refute it. Mm -hmm. Tell us why it's wrong. Don't just brand it as wrong and expect us to believe you. Right, and one thing that I, that was actually where I was going to go with this conversation anyway, with the incidents that we've seen in Canada. Of course, Canada has no right to freedom of religion. They do not have a First Amendment. But I think it was very shocking for a lot of people to see this, not in Iran or North Korea or China, but to see something like this actually unfold in North America, our neighbors to the north, in a, a, a nation that we generally consider to be America light or something you know akin to us. And so I, my follow-up question in that would ultimately just be, uh, do you think that this could happen in America? Does the First Amendment guarantee that this would be beyond the pale that it could never happen or is this something that uh, even with our first amendment maybe down the road we could see something similar to this happening i'd say it's a distinct possibility and you're right we have looked at canada as probably our best ally and 
a 2,000-mile unguarded border that we've had, that we've been able to share with Canada. Mm -hmm. We see them as coming out of the same English legal tradition and having many of the same rights as ours, not the exact same constitution to protect them, but a legal tradition that protects those rights. But many of those things already are going on in the United States. Canada seems to be a little bit further down the line on these things than we are. Right. Luckily, but, so far, we haven't mm -hmm. thrown a, a preacher into prison or put fences around churches. Not yet, but I mean, that, that's what I'm asking. Like, could we see that happen in the near future? We've done some things that are close. But to say we're not quite as far down as Canada is on this, but we're moving in the same direction, or we have been. And one of the really, really encouraging things, I think, if you look to things that President Trump did while he was in office, is appointing three new justices to the Supreme Court in Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and now Barrett, and all three of them seem to be standing very firm for religious liberty, and I'm thankful for that. And, But nevertheless, we have what we're talking about today is the living constitution approach. Living constitution meaning that every generation should reinterpret the constitution for itself. By that, I mean every generation of unelected federal judges should reinterpret the constitution for themselves. But with that approach, the constitution is as Jefferson said it would be, a ball of wax to be molded by any judge who wants to remold it to suit his own image. And we don't need a living constitution. We need an enduring constitution that stands the test of time. Fortunately, we have a number of justices on the Supreme Court, I hope a majority, that are taking that position right now. But how long they will continue, God only knows. And we can only pray, God save this honorable court. Well, I've said for a long time that people that are sort of adopt that doctrine that you're talking about, the living constitution, they only want it to be living so that they can kill it. Because if it's not living, if it's eternal, then they can't do anything to it. But if it's living, they can kill it. And so ultimately, I think that that is the goal. However, I will say, and in, in talking about something that you just touched on uh, there in, in the last thing that you were talking about, um, when it comes to the Supreme Court and the makeup of the court, I do agree with your assessment that Justice Barrett and Justice Kavanaugh, and, and frankly, you probably shared some of my concerns about Justice Kavanaugh, but so far he's been pretty good. And is that something that is going to at least act as a, I know that that's going to be something that acts as kind of a backdrop to this, but I guess my question is, what do we do in the meantime? Because as great as it is to have a Supreme Court that strikes these things down, you know, these restrictions, even the cases that make it to the Supreme Court in a relatively timely manner, it could be one to two years before this stuff really gets overturned and the Supreme Court makes a ruling on it. And so um, I think it's really more important to have a culture of liberty and a culture of freedom to where these things wouldn't happen in the first place. And, and how do we get to that point? All the Supreme Court can do is buy time. That is, they can slow down the process by which we ignore the Constitution. If we have a public and if we had an executive branch and a legislative branch that are determined to ignore the Constitution, all the court can do is just buy time and slow down the process. But you're correct on that. That I mean, it takes some time. And one thing that I'll say, 
I am optimistic about with our new justices of the court. We have three that were appointed by President Trump, and yet when several cases came before them, like the Texas versus Pennsylvania case challenging election results, they didn't do what Trump wanted them to do. And honestly, in that particular instance, I was very disappointed that they didn't. If they had, you know, generally, I don't want an activist court, but if right. they had acted as they should have before the election, some of this could have been presented, pre prevented. But let me just say this. If these justices are willing to stand up to President Trump and his administration, I'm hopeful they'll be willing to stand up to Biden and his administration as well. I, I totally agree with you, but at the same time, that's like the ultimate glass half full moment. I, I concur with your opinion. I'm just saying that like I, I wouldn't have even thought to think of it that way, but I appreciate that you brought that to the table. Because I do think it says something to their strength of character, and, and I think that even though Justice Barrett hasn't been on the court very long, even she has shown some real backbone in, in this, and I think it's unfortunate that the justice that has shown little backbone, if any, has been Justice Roberts, who in the past several cases, including the one that, that came down uh, Friday when it came to the church's gathering in California, Justice Roberts again sided with the, the liberal side of the court, and I'm wondering if we should just start counting him, not even as a Justice Kennedy, but as maybe a another Justice Breyer. Well, I would still hope that he is better than Justice Kennedy. And these are decisions where He's ruled on technical matters. For example, in the, several of these religious liberty cases, cases involving COVID, where mm -hmm. he has been on the other side, he has simply been un unwilling to issue an emergency order and has limited it to that. He hasn't joined with the dissenting opinions of Justice Kagan and Sotomayor and the liberal branch of the court. He has concurred with them for different reasons. Mm -hmm. On the abortion issue, for example, we saw in June Medical that he felt we were bound by the previous precedent in that case because even the plaintiffs in that case had not challenged that precedent. And But when the ultimate case comes before the court to overrule Roe versus Wade, and it might be our Alabama statute that brings it before them, but when that case comes before them, I am still hopeful that Justice Roberts will find himself on our side. Well, I certainly hope that that is the case because a 6-3 oh, opinion sounds hope. a lot better. You notice I said hopeful. I didn't say confident. Yeah, I know. I know. I, I caught that too. Um, but going forward, you do think that by and large with the, the three new justices, at least until the makeup of the tort changes again, we, we probably are on pretty safe grounds concerning that. I think I'll just stick with my original statement again. Hopeful, not confident, but hopeful. Optimistic. Fair enough. So before we go, I did want to ask about the Alabama case and get a, a few more details on that. How is that going and what's the status of that right now? Well, it is before the court right now. And the state is now saying that our lawsuit is moot simply because the orders that we are challenging are no longer in effect. Right. We are arguing that it is not moot, number one, because the abuse here is capable of repetition. In other words, they could reinstitute those orders at any time, especially with all this talk about variant forms of the virus coming in, that mm -hmm. mutant forms, that, that this could be reinstated at any time. But secondly, 
we sue not only for an injunction against future orders, but we're also suing for nominal damages because of the past orders. We've had businesses that have been very badly damaged because mm -hmm. of this. Contracts, for example, one one of our clients, a chiropractic firm, has regular memberships in their clinic that they give, and these had to be canceled because, in effect, the clinic had to be virtually closed down and so mm -hmm. on. And, and so we are suing for past violations. And so we believe that we will survive their argument that this is moot. But that's what's being argued right now. Well, I certainly uh, wish y'all Godspeed, and, and I do hope that that takes place because I, I still assert and have since the very beginning that Kay Ivey's orders were against the Alabama Constitution because even the provision that she cited in Alabama law that stated that she had, quote-unquote, permission to do this, I read it and it was based on basically, basically health inspectors being able to inspect schools and restaurants to make sure that they're not serving rancid food or something. And somehow she got out of that, that this means I can shut down every business in the state for an indefinite amount of time. I don't see how any sane person could read that statute and get that out of it. But nonetheless, I've, I've maintained that from the very beginning. And you're right. The main thing is I'm not as worried about Governor Ivy, even though I think she made some very uh, well-intended but but dumb decisions when all of this first started. I'm more worried about what happens if we have a governor that is a little bit more gung-ho about being able to shut all of this down. If we did have somebody similar to a Whitmire or a Cuomo or a Newsom, if we had that, I'm, I'm more worried about what would happen if that scenario were to take place. And that's why I think your argument is absolutely correct that this is not a moot because this is something that could be replicated if given an emergency. And if we've learned anything from this coronavirus situation, it's that once government takes power under the guise of an emergency, they want to just declare that it's an emergency all the time. And you made a very valiant or very valid point here too, Caleb. And that's that when you give a power to somebody in government, don't give it to a particular official just because we're confident that that official will use it wisely. Mm -hmm. We always, when we give power to government officials, we have to remember that they're going to be replaced. And the question to ask is, would I want someone of the opposite political party, the opposite philosophy, or of the worst possible character to be able to exercise this power? And if the answer to that is no, then we shouldn't give that power to even the best person. Oh, absolutely. Uh, before we go, though, and I always try to give an opportunity for any of my guests to do this. If there were like, because, you know, I'm not a genius. And every time that I have somebody on, I, I can't possibly think of everything they might need to let us know. So is there anything that I've neglected to ask that maybe you would like our audience to know if you could just uh, is there anything, any piece of information that they need that I haven't thought to ask about or cover? Well, we sometimes say war is too important to be left to the generals and that education is too important to be left just to teachers. So let me add, too, that the Constitution is too important to be left to just to lawyers. And I assume the majority of our listeners here are not lawyers. But I would encourage you, read the Constitution. Get into it, read it for yourself. See what it says. Notice the limits that it places on government power. 
and consider those limits the next time you decide who to vote for in an election. I, you know, I couldn't agree more, Colonel, and every Christian should have read the Bible cover to cover. Every American should have read the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence multiple times as well. I, I think that that just comes with it. You should have to, to be able to do that. And, you know, there was a time it was impossible to get through the school system without having done that, but that is no longer the case. But thank you so much for being with us. We certainly appreciate it, and uh, thank you for being generous with your time. Excellent interview, Caleb. Let's do it again. All right. Looking forward to it. Thank you so much. That was Colonel John Ismo of the Foundation for Moral Law. We certainly appreciate him coming on the program and appreciate his insight into religious liberty, which is, of course, a subject that affects us all. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back on Tactics. Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Be sure to click the like button or the subscribe button. Hit that little notification bell because that lets the dark cyber overlords at YouTube know that you're one of us, you like us, and that really, you know, puts a damper on their day. And that's the reason that we ask you to do it. One other thing that I did want to mention before we go on to our daily dose of stupid is the Montgomery Biscuits. So the Montgomery Biscuits are going to be back in business here in May. The first game, their home opener, is going to be on May the 11th. Tickets are, I believe that they have not gone on sale yet, but they will be going on sale within a few days. So be sure to check them out at Montgomery Biscuits Baseball. That is Montgomery Biscuits Baseball or just Biscuits Baseball. Either one of those will take you to the website. And the reason that I'm bringing this up is because they were nice enough to sponsor a video game tournament for us recently. And I mean, honestly, I would probably do this even if they didn't. Biscuits have just been a fantastic addition to the Montgomery community and the Montgomery family. My family has been ticket holders, uh, season ticket holders, since the inaugural season in 2004, I believe. And in fact, last year was the only year that we did not go to a Biscuits game because they didn't have any. Because of the pandemic, the entire season got canceled. And I, for one, cannot wait to get back to the ballpark. I'm very much looking forward to getting to see my Biscuits play baseball and I know that the rest of the community of Montgomery certainly is too. So be sure to check them out at BiscuitsBaseball.com. You can swing by the Biscuit Basket. I believe they're open from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. So you can go there, get your Biscuits merch even before the season starts. Go and check them out at Riverwalk Stadium. It's great for you. It's a great time for your family. It's a great value. General admissions tickets are going as low as 8 bucks a pop. So you can certainly do that. I know that they've been missing having you, the fans, in the stadium. And I know that they've missed you as much as you've missed them. So go out, you know, have a hot dog, sit at the ballpark, go with your family, have a good time, and, uh, you know, just get back to normal. It's, it's a nice little taste of getting back to normal here in the capital city, and it just would not be the city of Montgomery without the Montgomery Biscuits. They are my favorite thing to do in the city. So just be able to, to go out and do that. Remember, it biscuits, everybody gets to play. So we'll go ahead and go to our daily dose of stupid. That was stupid. I know it was stupid. Really stupid. Hey, I just said it was stupid. And our daily dose of stupid today, I guess maybe because of the vaccine, 
It seems we've been having a lot of these, but I feel like if they're going to give you two doses of the Moderna vaccine or the Pfizer vaccine, I should give you two doses of the daily dose of stupid, at least until this whole thing wears off. So just true to, to form, we did this last time. We actually have a double dose of daily dose of stupid for you. Uh, the first one is from Nancy Pelosi. Now, I don't know if you knew this, but Nancy Pelosi is a street fighter. That's correct. The 185-year-old woman, Nancy Pelosi, is indeed a street fighter. And, and the reason I know it is because I read it in the mainstream media. This is an interview with her from USA Today. Uh, that's what they were setting out to do, she told USA Today. If her security agents hadn't managed to evacuate her from the White House chamber at the time, now remember, they're talking about the January 6th riot, they asked if they frightened her. She replied, well, I'm pretty tough. I'm a street fighter. They would have had a battle on hands. <laughs> Besides, she said laughing, lifting a foot clad in her classic four-inch high stilettos, I would have had these to use as weapons. Uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi, she's a street fighter, you know, and that's the reason that she is is able to uh, fight off any of those bad, evil rioters at the January 6th riot. I mean, thank God nobody actually ran into Nancy Pelosi, but it wouldn't be because I would be worried about Nancy Pelosi hurting them. It would be because I'm worried about them hurting Nancy Pelosi. Now, she pretty much goes everywhere with an armed security detail, so I'm sure that they, they would have had some people in the, the rioters get hurt, but it wouldn't have been because Nancy Pelosi would have hurt anybody. <laughs> Just the idea of her using her stilettos as a weapon. That's such a, that's such a dumb thing to, to do. Look, ladies, I, I don't even know that that wouldn't be worse than nothing. A shoe is not a good weapon. It's, I mean, maybe you could break the heel off and use it to just jab somebody like that, but as a general rule, don't, don't think of your shoes as weapons. If anything, you'd be better off just fighting hand-to-hand -hand than you would be trying to fight him off with a stiletto. <sighs> but she is a street fighter. Now, I laughed at this, and, and I had a good time with it. But it became a lot less funny, and I, I realized that it really wasn't a joke when I saw that Capcom has just released this graphic from the new Street Fighter 6. This is going to be coming out later this year. And, uh, yeah, it is Nancy Pelosi. So she is in Street Fighter. Nancy Pelosi will be facing off against Ken and Ryu and Chun-Li and, and all the other gang there at Street Fighter. <laughs> That's actually a pretty good... <laughs> whoever did that, I, I have no idea who it was. I just found it on the internet. But whoever did that... Uh, really good detail on the pantsuit there, but I maybe maybe I shouldn't laugh. Maybe Nancy Pelosi is a, a lot tougher than I thought. Maybe she really is a, a street fighter. Uh, she probably honed her skills fighting off redcoats in Boston back in the day. You know what it reminds me of? Have you ever seen that episode? Have you ever seen that episode of Seinfeld? where there's the old guys that they keep challenging Jerry to, like, pick up a TV, and all of them wind up in the hospital because they're all ancient, and they're, it's the Mandelbaum guys that are like, we're going to pick up this TV! Mandelbaum! Mandelbaum! <laughs> <sighs> <laughs> I 
that's what this reminds me of. It, it does. This little old lady, um, while she's playing with her dentures, very obviously in the State of the Union, and she couldn't even rip the... You remember this? She couldn't rip the piece of paper, so she had to pre-rip the transcript of the State of the Union. She had to have a tear done in advance because she wasn't strong enough to actually rip the piece of paper. But she's a street fighter, guys. Nancy Pelosi is totally going to going to whoop some tail when, when rioters invade the Capitol. <laughs> I will say, I guess the only actual point that I could take away this other than just laughing at it is there's, there's this weird thing with politicians that they feel like they have to be able to beat up other people or they, they want to feel like they could handle themselves in a fight. Now, normally it only happens with the men. But you'll remember that this was was Trump's big thing is like I'd like to punch him in the mouth, just sock him right in the face. That was that was kind of Trump's thing. And Joe Biden's exactly the same way. They tried to treat Joe Biden as though he's like radically different from Trump, but the, the dirty little secret is as far as like mannerisms and things like that, now Joe Biden is a houseplant and Donald Trump has the energy of a thirty five year old. So there's a pretty big contrast there. But when it came to like the whole threatening to beat up people, Joe Biden's like Ugh. Um, look, look fat. Um, see how many push-ups I can do right now. I'm like, I, I so wish that he had actually challenged Joe Biden to a push-up match. That would have been the most hilarious thing ever. Now, the dude that was saying that, like, he was a whale, so I kind of doubt he would have been able to do any more than Joe Biden. I think they both would have tied at zero. But the idea of Joe Biden trying to do a push-up would have just been hysterical. But it, it, I guess maybe it kind of highlights her hypocrisy on gun rights, too, that she never goes anywhere without her security detail, but also, you know, doesn't want you to be able to have guns to protect yourself. I guess she just thinks everybody can afford giant freezers full of designer ice cream and, and security detail wherever they go. I, I guess that's how she thinks the world works, but Nancy Pelosi ain't a street fighter. And our second Daily Dose of Stupid, so our Daily Dose of Stupid for the evening... Apparently, words just don't mean things anymore. You know, for a long time throughout human history, we've had language. And generally speaking, while there's been some discrepancy and some words that can have multiple definitions, we generally agree that words have a set meaning. When we're speaking to one another, we don't just kind of assume all the time that there there is no set meaning to these things, that they... Uh, constantly change and shift with the wind. And in mid-conversation, a word can mean one thing and then mean something completely other, uh, completely different the next sec- the, the next time that we're, we're speaking. Generally speaking, that that's how we communicate with one another. But apparently the Democrats have just decided, um, no, w- words just mean pretty much whatever the crap we want them to mean. And a great illustration of this comes from Senator... Kristen Gillibrand, you remember she ran for president for like five seconds before she left? I call her Diet Hillary because she's basically just a slightly younger version of Hillary Clinton, which, I mean, you know, being anything under the age of 80 would be slightly younger than Hillary Clinton. Uh, But anyway, Kristen Gillibrand rolls this out. Paid leave is infrastructure. Child care is infrastructure. Caregiving is infrastructure. What? No, that that's not infrastructure. Those are things, and they may be things that you like, but they are not, in fact, infrastructure. And, and this whole thing comes on the heels 
of them trying to pass this infrastructure bill and, and one of the common criticisms that it is faced, and rightfully so, is that there's actually not a whole lot of infrastructure spending in this bill. And so what they're saying is all the other things contained within this, this bill, which is basically just a giant payoff and a, a Democrat wish list, all those things actually are infrastructure because we say they're infrastructure. But uh, back here in reality, if you'll join me for a moment, we actually do still have a language that has words with set definitions. That's why we have a dictionary. And that's why this, this definition of infrastructure comes from dictionary.com. You can see there's a few of them. One, the basic underlying framework or features of a system or organization. Two, the fundamental facilities and systems serving a country or a city or area as transportation or communication systems, power plants, and schools. And then three, the military installations of a country. Now, I would even say that schools are kind of iffy as far as infrastructure. I mean, they're certainly a government entity, but they're not necessarily infrastructure in the strictest sense of the word. I guess I guess they're buildings, but that's not necessarily infrastructure. But nonetheless, you know, we can parse words here a little bit with dictionary definition. But even given the, I would say, somewhat generous definition from dictionary.com, those definitions still do not work with what Kristen Gillibrand was saying, that child care and, and caring for kids and all that stuff, that, that's not, not infrastructure. Not in any, by anyone's definition, is that infrastructure in any way. But I, I guess apparently now infrastructure just means things that Democrats like. So I, I guess if a Democrat likes it, that makes it infrastructure somehow. I don't know. But that seems to be the standard that we have drawn for ourselves. But this is, this is common. This is something that it really should surprise nobody because this is how Democrats operate. This is how they work. Basically what they do and, and the way that they try to make this whole thing function is they know that they can't win debates based on the merits of their argument. So they have to constantly change the words because it's the only way they can win the argument. When you say, um, your infrastructure plan has very little to do with infrastructure. They're like, um, no, it's all infrastructure. That's how they work it. Because it's the only way that it makes any sense. If you just redefine infrastructure to mean everything that Democrats like, well, then there's a lot of infrastructure in that bill. And this is something that they've done for a very long time. We were actually talking about it in the way that the media just immediately snapped to right away the second that this thing was being rebranded, that instead of packing the courts, it became expanding the courts, which sounds a lot less sinister and underhanded and probably polls a lot better with people. And so they moved to expanding the courts as opposed to packing the courts. Uh, Medicare for all, the Affordable Care Act, we, we know these examples undocumented worker instead of illegal immigrant or refugee. They, they'll refer to them as refugees. In fact, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez got very upset by people even saying illegal immigrant or um, now I think even undocumented worker is kind of going by the wayside. Even the, the woke versions of these terms are going away. And uh, they, she doesn't like the word insurgents, which is really funny. She thinks that somehow... Um, surge and insurgents are the same thing, but when people say surge at the border, they don't mean an insurgents. But regardless, that's that's apparently her uh, her way to do that. They, they did the same thing with Dreamer, you know, th with Dreamer. They 
just redefined anybody under the age of 18 that was illegal. He's well, he's not a, an unaccompanied minor and he's not an illegal immigrant. He's a dreamer. Like, I guess American kids don't dream. I don't know if that's how that works. Or another one that they are really good at is uh, instead of gun control, because eventually gun control became toxic originally, I mean, it was just a Second Amendment violation, and they changed that to gun control, and when gun control didn't work anymore, they changed it to gun safety. See, because gun safety law sounds a lot better than gun control law, because everyone knows what gun control actually means. And then they did the same thing with, like, universal background checks, even though background checks are already universal. What they mean by that is, specific, like, background checks on people that are just trading as individual citizens. Uh, ghost gun is another one that we talked about a lot last week is that when, when you say it's a ghost gun, it sounds a lot scarier. So let's call them ghost guns or assault weapons. That's another one that they just made up that actually means nothing. So uh, and pro-choice, of course, is probably the most egregious and the uh, most oft used one that we're pro-choice. Well, except for the choice that the baby makes, we're for taking away all of his choices so that we can have our own choices. But we're pro-choice. Yay. That's. I guess how they operate is they can't win arguments, so they have to constantly redefine the terms. And then, of course, we're familiar with the way that they just basically, if everything that we like is infrastructure, everything we dislike is racist. We don't like voter ID laws, so they're racist. Well, how are they racist? Uh, we don't know, but they're definitely racist. We, we definitely don't like that. Well, what about laws cracking down on voter fraud? Well, that's racist. Uh, what about laws that would prevent Muslim refugees being taken into the interior? Well, that's racist now. Uh, everything is racist, as my friend Stu Gear would point out uh, with that catchy song. Everything is racist. That Everything is racist, guys. Everything that we don't like is racist. Everything we do like is infrastructure. You see, they found out that the American people, infrastructure polls really well with them, and so most people like infrastructure. Most people don't like racism for good reason. And so if we just call everything that we like infrastructure and we call everything that we dislike racist, well, then people will like all the things we like and dislike all the things that we dislike. And, you know, it's sad, but unfortunately, that strategy isn't terrible. I mean, it's gained some traction and some people actually believe, for example, that certain people that are not racist, or there's no evidence to suggest they are racist, are because of what the Democrats have said. And I guess if you can buy that, you can buy that universal health care is somehow infrastructure. I don't know. But it's not just Kristen Gillibrand that's pointing this out. And by the way, even though she didn't say health care is infrastructure, that was said by the next person that we're going to take a look at. This is Bernie Sanders explaining all of this on MSNBC. When we talk about infrastructure, of course, we're talking about roads and bridges. Water is a big deal. Water systems, wastewater plants. But we've got to take a broad look at what infrastructure means, human infrastructure for ordinary people. Human infrastructure means housing. You got a half a million people in this country who are homeless. You got 19 million households who are spending 50% of their limited incomes on housing. We need to build housing. When I talk about infrastructure, it means if a worker, mom and dad are going to work, they have the right to know that their kids are in decent childcare. That's infrastructure. Infrastructure is having the best educated workforce in the world. That means all of our kids should have the ability to get a higher education, not leave school deeply in debt. It means that we need a healthy society. Our life expectancy is 40th in the world because we are the only major country not to guarantee health care to all people. So I think as a nation, we've got to take a very broad look 
at what we mean by infrastructure. It's physical infrastructure, obviously, bricks and mortar. It is human infrastructure. And now is the time to create millions of jobs addressing all of the needs impacting the middle class and working families of this country. Well, this should surprise really nobody, because remember, Bernie Sanders is the guy that's saying, we'll just rebrand something that people don't like the sound of, socialism, and we'll call it democratic socialism, and that'll make it all good and wonderful and rainbow sunshine. And uh, we'll just say that we're going to do what Denmark and other Scandinavian countries are doing, even though you know they have virtually no regulations on businesses and have really low corporate taxes. We'll just pretend as though that's a democratic socialism, and that'll make it much more palatable and better. And so Bernie Sanders is not above playing these word games, and we see that he's at it again. The infrastructure just basically means whatever I want it to mean. And so I'll just redefine the terms to mean, you know, child care or health care or housing for people. That, that's all infrastructure. No, it's not. It's roads and bridges. And here's the thing. Why do people like infrastructure? Why are Democrats so tempted to just redefine everything to infrastructure? I mean, as I've already said, it's because people like it. People generally desire government to do infrastructure. It's one of the very few things that they actually do want them to do. And I think that's very telling. Even people that tend to be moderate are on the left. They still see things like infrastructure as the primary thing that government is supposed to do. Basically, as long as they handle things like crime and at the federal level handle things like foreign threats and they have roads and bridges and, and all of that other stuff that allows them to get where they need to go, that's really all most people care about. Uh, you could maybe throw schools in there depending on who it is and depending on whether or not they've got kids. Uh, you know, Some people really care about that. Some people don't care about it as much. But regardless, that's another thing. But by and large... Most people just want infrastructure. They just want government to handle that kind of stuff and, and just sort of ignore everything else. I wish that people were more like that and then there'd be more libertarians out there because that's one of the few things that most libertarians would agree that there is some legitimate role for the government having their hand in that. But ultimately, it does speak to the idea that Americans primarily want government to do infrastructure. And what's funny is, the Democrats have realized this, but they're using the word infrastructure as a Trojan horse to shovel in a whole bunch of agenda items that they really like and prefer and, and would like to pass. But they're doing it under the guise of infrastructure. Now, in the past, they've just done this kind of quietly. Like, they would shove all this stuff into an infrastructure bill, call it an infrastructure bill, and then when people, you know, made note of, wait a second, most of that stuff isn't infrastructure. They would either add more stuff that is infrastructure to kind of cover up the fact that all that other pork barrel spending and whatnot is still in the bill, or, and what they would they would also try to do this, they would just kind of ignore it and let the media cover for them. Now they're going full hog and basically letting it hang out as like, yeah, it's it's all infrastructure, it's whatever. We're they're lying to your face because they think and, and they know that their buddies in the media will cover for them. In fact, Al Vashti, who was conducting this interview with Bernie Sanders, immediately after he said that, he's like, well, that was a very compelling argument. And I'm sitting there like, did you watch the same clip that I just did? Because I didn't see anything that convinced me that that was infrastructure. Not one. He didn't make one argument that I thought made any sense when it came to why that is infrastructure. But the media is going to continue to cover for them. But to the larger point, I want you to think about this. 
Because we can make jokes about the way that they've just redefined infrastructure to mean anything they want, and we'll have a good chuckle out of it. I'm enjoying it too. But dig down to what Bernie Sanders really meant there. What's the meaning behind this? When he says human infrastructure, and he says, well, you've got your regular infrastructure, which is brick and mortar, and you have your human infrastructure, which is just, you know, kind of part of the system like bricks and mortar and roads and bridges, and it's, it's really all the same thing. Why is Bernie Sanders comfortable with saying that? What is he implying there? You see, to Bernie Sanders, there is no difference. The man is a communist. He's a collectivist. He believes in the collective and in the government and not in the individual. And so to him, it makes sense that government would be involved in things like providing your health care, providing your food, providing your housing, providing your child care. To him, it makes sense that that is infrastructure because he sees you, the individual, as merely a cog in the machine. You're just one more brick in the wall. That's how he sees it, because he says bricks and mortar, that's infrastructure. Humans, also infrastructure. Same thing, right? That's how he views people. He doesn't think of you as having individual rights. He doesn't think of you as an individual at all. You only have value as it pertains to the collective. Your contributions to society are the only thing that give you value. Your relationship to the collective is how you have value. You're not an individual. You're just a number. You're just one more cog in the machine. And he's the mechanic, and he's going to fix you and tell you how to run. And because of that, the government will provide you with things like food and housing as long as you need it to be productive. And the second that you're not productive, they pull all those things back. Because when the government gives it to you, the government can take it away from you. When the government is the one that is giving you rights, which is the way that he sees it, the government has the right to take those rights away if all of a sudden you having those rights threatens the government or just makes you less productive. In his mind, that's the way society is supposed to work. You're not a person. You're a piece. You're a unit. You're an asset. You're not a human. And that's why he can say terms like human infrastructure and be perfectly fine with it. This is the way the man thinks. You are nothing more than a piece of livestock or a part of a bridge or something. To him, that's who you are. And I don't think that he meant to articulate it in that way, but that's exactly what the underlying principle is with him saying that and being able to say it with a straight face and not think about it in that term. Because that's how collectivists view everyone. Your value only comes to you through the community. You don't have value as an individual. You don't have individual rights. Your opinions, your thoughts, none of that matters on the individual level. You only matter as you relate to the larger community as a whole. You can hear them talk about stuff like this in their language every single time they open their mouths if you're listening for it. They don't think of you as an individual that is created by God with a purpose. Because at the end of the day, your life just doesn't matter all that much. We're more concerned with everything on the macro level. And that's how he views it. And that's the reason that he's like, we'll provide you with all these things just so you can be productive enough to us to justify it. But ultimately, the, 
I guess the best way to categorize that is this is the natural result. I mean, this is what you would expect from the tenets that he's talking about here, because if you do not understand two things, individual rights and objective truth, then that's how you arrive in Bernie Sanders town. That's how you get there. To understand that human beings are merely part of a larger picture and they don't matter as individuals and the government has to provide you with certain things so that you can be productive and then you better start making returns on that investment, that's how a collectivist and a progressive and a communist thinks. And why has he reached there? Why is this whole story with him and Chris and Gillibrand and redefining terms, why does all that work? Because if there is no objective morality, then words don't mean anything. If there's no objective truth, then words just mean whatever we th we want them to mean in the moment. Anything that serves the purpose of the, the collective, if there is no objective truth, then it just means whatever we want it to mean. And also, since you don't matter as an individual, you know, we just provide you with the things that you want, the things you need, you know, wh whether you want to make it on your own or not, that's really kind of immaterial to us. And then you're going to produce for us, and then we're going to make a return on that investment. That's how they see it. And that's how they get to this point to where they can see people as just another brick in the wall. Let's go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for The Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on Tactics. And The Chaplain's Report today does come from the book of 1 Samuel. We're continuing our series on the book of 1 Samuel in today's Chaplain's Report. And just to give you a little bit of context, you may remember that David is now on the run from King Saul, and he has found himself at this uh, tabernacle of sorts. Uh, I guess it would have been synagogue i i don't know but it's some kind of location where there is worship going on and there are levite priests there and so because of this david has taken up refuge in a building that is reserved for worship and sacrifice basically kind of like their equivalent to a church back then and he is partaken of the showbread and and that's when this conversation happens between him and the head priest there this comes from first samuel 21 verses 8 through 9 David said to him to Ahimelech, Now is there no spear or sword on hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's matter was urgent. Then the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed, is in the valley of Elah. Below, uh, behold, it is wrapped in a cloth and behind the ephod. If you would take it for yourself, take it, for there is no other except it here. And David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. It's an interesting little piece of, of trivia here, I guess. It's not something that has a ton of theological weight, I guess. But it is interesting on a number of ways, and I think that we can kind of extrapolate a, a message from this. What do we know about this sword? Well, we know as... Ahimelech actually just alluded to, this is the sword of Goliath that David slew. In other words, it is a weapon that David acquired 
by God's grace. And here again, when he is in need of a weapon, when he is in need of protection, he finds a weapon that was originally provided to him by a victory that God gave him. I think that that's pretty profound. And I also think it's interesting that it is the weapon of an enemy. Now, here's where the history comes into play here. The Israelites were not really well versed in ironwork yet. That was primarily an advantage that the Philistines held at this point in history. The Israelites still primarily had weapon technology from the Bronze Age, and so their swords would have been not iron, probably would have been bronze of some kind or made of something else. But steel technology and iron technology had not really been developed by them, and so Goliath's swords would have been an iron sword. And it probably would have been significantly larger than a normal one because, after all, remember how big Goliath's shield and how big Goliath's spear is? It, it just makes sense that his sword would have been pretty darn big, too. And so this is a very large, very heavy iron sword, which David would not have had access to otherwise. So this is a pretty powerful weapon. And you remember that the way Goliath died is, of course, he was struck in the head with a rock, but then after he was stunned, David picks up Goliath's sword, the very sword that we're talking about, and slices his head off with it. Being somebody that has studied swordplay, there are a few things that are the most embarrassing or the most disgraceful thing to happen to you as a swordsman. One of them is getting a, a wound in the back. Because if you are wounded in the back, it means you were so incompetent that you actually allowed your opponent to get behind you while you were sword fighting. And that's a pretty embarrassing thing to have. If you have any sword mark, if you have like a scar on your back as a swordsman, that is something that is considered disgraceful amongst other swordsmen. But another thing that's interesting to note here too, is that considering how you know sought after this weapon was and how powerful it was compared to the weapons that would have been available to the Israelites, I think it's really fascinating that God used something that was made by an enemy in order to provide David protection. God has this interesting habit of taking things that were intended for evil and making them into good. And this is a, a very old theme in the scripture. It's, it's basically stated in plain language back in Genesis with the story of Joseph, where they his brothers stripped him of his coat and sold him into slavery, and he spends decades away from his family, not ever expecting to see them ever again just being out in Egypt. And yet, when his brothers do meet him and he confesses who he is and reveals himself, he says, you intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. I find that an appropriate line of thinking to bring up right here, where we see a little episode where David is in need of something to defend himself. He had to leave in a hurry he does not have a weapon on him, and if he were to be taken over by Saul or, or any other enemy for that matter, at this point, David would be more or less defenseless. And yet, God sees fit to provide him with a weapon yet again, and not just any weapon, a weapon that was fashioned out of the enemy. I mean, this is the spiritual equivalent to a demon sword. Now, obviously, I don't believe that those exist. I'm just using that as an example. Like, this is, this is a weapon that was created to bring harm to God's nation and his people. 
And here David is going to use it as a means to protect himself and to protect God's kingdom. You know, I've always said that God has a sense of humor and a sense of irony because of passages like this. That he specifically takes something that was always intended to be made to do evil against his people and turns it into a powerful weapon of defense for his people. And this is something that he does really in in less obvious ways throughout the Old Testament, and in some cases the New as well. He takes the very things that are supposed to be a harm to us, and he turns it around to be something that brings us honor. I think of Daniel and his friends when they were dealing with the fiery furnace. You know, they refused to take of the food, and so they eat only things that would have been in accordance with the law of Moses, vegetables and water, and somehow they wound up in better shape than the guys that were eating all the choice delicacies of the king. And then they refuse to worship, and the king threatens to kill them, and they say, well, kill us, we're still not going to worship an idol. And then he casts them into the furnace, and then he gives them this great place of honor, even though the king intended to kill them, and the furnace became the very event that brought them great honor and prestige, and and probably brought a lot of people in the kingdom to get to understand and at least have some exposure to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's interesting to me that God does this over and over again, and he does it in our lives too. There are so many things, so many examples in our lives that he takes things that were probably intended to do us great harm and wound up bringing us great blessing and great joy or help somebody else. And I'm guessing in a lot of ways we probably don't see it at the time. You know, one of the things that I went through was when I was having experiencing cancer and going through chemo is that strengthened my spirit and, and strengthened my relationship with God in a lot of ways. And so it's something that most people would think of that would be a detriment, and it was in a lot of ways, but it was also something that really improved my own spirituality. And there's times where we see things, I, I've had issues with... um you know, family members, that sometimes there were events that that put me in a a rough position with them, but we were able to reconcile specifically because of that, or, or things that seemed uncomfortable at the time that wound up drawing us closer to one another. And so there are times where God takes even the things that Satan intends to destroy us, he intends to use against us and to harm our relationship with God that instead only strengthens it. And With that in mind, I ask us to to go throughout the rest of this week looking for those things, looking for things that people that may be hostile towards the kingdom of God intend to do harm with us, uh, to us with. And instead, see if there's a way that God can turn that around and use it for the good. Because God has a a habit of doing that. Stay the course, friends. Thank you for listening to the Tactics Podcast. Tactics is a production of Not Ashamed Media. Any opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of our business partners or sponsors. Graphics by Jessica Dawson. Video production by Jackson Dean. Broadcast studio provided by Faulkner University. Location studio provided by Delreda Church of Christ. Copyright 2021.